Well, this evening's uh, scripture passage for the sermon is uh, Colossians uh, 1 and 2, or sorry, Colossians 1, verses 1 and 2. And I know what you're thinking. Brandon just preached on Ephesians 1, 1 and 2. Is this going to be the same? No, it will not, I assure you. Though the verses basically look the exact same, it will be uh, much different. So as you turn there, and let me uh, open my Bible there as well. Probably had a bookmark in here. Uh, Colossians 1, verses 1 and 2. Hear now God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Let me pray. Lord, would you open your word to us this evening? It's a short passage, but would you nonetheless make it expand into a river of blessings for all here, including myself? And give grace, Lord, for the praise of your name. Amen. Well, introductions are important because they orient us to what the content of whatever comes after an introduction is supposed to be. The phrase, uh, don't judge a, judge a book by its cover, is fair enough. Uh, good books can have bad covers. A better phrase, though, that I think is very, fairly accurate is, you can judge a book by its introduction. Because an introduction is meant to convey, it's meant to whet your appetite for what follows. And I know some people uh, don't like to read introductions, they like to get straight to the meat of the book, but if you don't read the introduction of a book, you might be lost in the weeds. You might not uh, have the map that orients you towards what the author intends, what he means by maybe some uh, particular words or phrases that he's going to use throughout his book. And certainly, if any of you have ever written a letter or uh, received a letter, the opening words set the tone. To whom it may concern does not enlicit a warm, fuzzy feeling for you in the letter that ensues. On the other hand, if it says, dearly beloved, that is, oh, this is probably going to be positive. I'm going to enjoy reading this. And so introductions uh, help us to have a sense of what comes uh, through the letter or through the book. And uh, we are also taught in seminary that introductions are supposed to orient the audience towards what comes uh, after in the sermon. And it's not supposed to be too big or too long, but the analogy that was given is that it's like a deck or a porch that's supposed to be fitted to an appropriately matching house in size and style and so on. And I hope this uh, introduction will be that. All of this talk about introductions is meant to orient us toward the introduction to the book of Colossians. Now, obviously, I'm not preaching through the book of Colossians in a long-standing series like uh, Brandon will be with Ephesians, uh, but nonetheless, uh, I'm going to orient us towards really all of Paul's letters because every single one of them starts in a similar way, and I hope that this evening will encourage us to pay more attention 
to these introductions. I hope that through reading Paul's greeting, we will learn that we should trust Scripture because it is God's word to his people to give them grace and peace. I hope we will learn that we should trust Scripture because it's God's word to God's people with the intention to give us grace and peace. And I'll do this in three points. This is my typical format. Still haven't gotten out of a three-point sermon. Maybe one day I will. Uh, But uh, we'll start with the authority of the apostle, the audience's status, and then the intention of the message, or in a more simple format, who's it from, who's it to, what's it for? So first, uh, who's it from, or the authority of the apostle? So a fair question might be, why on earth should we listen to someone who wrote a letter to a church 2,000 years ago? What does that have to do with me today in America in 2023 on not March 5th, but April 2nd in this fine evening? It's a very fine question to wonder. Who is Paul that we should listen to him in his message? Well, Paul could give some list of credentials here to sort of help us to know, you know, have some sense of why we should listen. He could uh, list his academic pedigree, Harvard, Yale, you know, Cambridge, Oxford, something like that. Certainly, Paul in his day had that level of education, studied under the highest rabbis. He could list his tribal identity. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. His former pedigree, a Pharisee of Pharisees, or any other human achievement that he could produce if you asked him to do. Paul was no slouch in this area. He doesn't do this. This is contrary to the way we should expect. For me, when I pick up a seminary book, I look at the back of the book and I'm like, who wrote this? Where did he go to get his PhD? Where has he taught? And what other books has he written? That's a natural thing to do. Paul doesn't help me with that. Instead, he gives different credentials that are contrary to what we'd expect. His credentials are that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. He is an apostle of Christ Jesus, and that is the only credentialing factor that he gives us to get, him, to get us to listen to him. And I would say it's enough, and I'll explain that. But before I do, I want to briefly consider what is an apostle. Many of you might know what an apostle is. Um, some of you may not, and that's okay. I didn't uh, know probably until seminary. Uh, an apostle is literally just someone who is sent. It has a general sense to it. And in a sense, I am a very general sense here, an apostle, because I was sent by Brandon Williams to fill this pulpit in his place. Very general sense. Uh, However, more specifically, in the way apostle is used of Paul, is it someone who's sent with a specific message on behalf of someone else to bear the authority of the person sending them. It's like a diplomat or an ambassador sent from one country to another, entrusted with a message, to bear the full authority of the person who sent them. So Paul here is sent as that specific type of apostle, not as a general sense of apostle like 
again, me, that's a stretch to even use it of me. Um, and what's more important than the fact that Paul is sent is who he's sent by. Because Paul could be sent by some John Doe and say, you know, I'm sent by this person, da-da-da-da-da. Well, why should I listen to that person? And it pushes the credentialing back and back and back. Uh, what's more important is, okay, Paul says who he's sent by. He's sent by Christ Jesus. He is an apostle of Christ Jesus himself. So what Paul says in the letter of Colossians, or the letter of Ephesians, remember this when Brandon picks up going back through Ephesians, is something that Paul has been entrusted with from Christ Jesus to bear towards God's people with the authority of Christ Jesus himself. And Paul makes this even more powerfully clear by saying that it's by the will of God. As if Christ Jesus wasn't enough, look, I'm an apostle by the will of God. I was sent by Christ and by God, Father and Son. I have their commissioning behind me. So that is why you ought to listen to me. And we might recall Paul's commissioning from Acts chapter 9, where he was on the road to Damascus. And Brandon drew this out in his introduction, introduction sermon to the book of Ephesians, where Paul was on the road to Damascus, being a murderer and persecutor of Christians, actively going to do that on the road to Damascus. And the Lord Jesus appeared to him from heaven and called out and stopped him and said, now I'm calling you to go to the Gentiles to proclaim the message that you just persecuted, to be the type of people, Christian, that you were just persecuting. So Paul, we can recall Paul's calling not just from him saying it, but by that story. Uh, it is God's authority, it is Christ's authority who determines Paul's authority. It is not just, he's not just a man who is highly educated or has a high pedigree. Thinking briefly on this point, uh, for application, uh, we can sometimes, and I have no vendetta against red-letter Bibles. This is not coming from any of that, but it's just meant as a correct, uh, helpful corrective. We can sometimes think the red letters in the Bible, if we have those types of Bibles, I actually don't own one, are more important. That those are really the words that come from God, and everything else, well, that's important, but I can disagree with it. I've seen this online. I've seen people say, well, that's what Paul says, but what does Jesus say? What does God say? This opening corrects us from that because Paul is saying, look, I'm sent by Christ Jesus according to the will of God. So whatever I'm saying to you, the church, the saints at Colossae, I'm saying as if God were saying it. So for us, that means if we refuse to listen to Paul or there's things that Paul says that we don't like, and we want to put those things aside, we're actually putting aside the very words of God. And we should not do that. We should instead, uh, as the confession said uh, that we read, we should um, yield obedience to the commands. We should tremble at the threatenings, and we should embrace the promises. And so as a negative, we should not disregard. But as a positive, we should take full, receive fully the promises therein offered. 
uh, because these promises in the book of Colossians, in the book of Ephesians, which you'll hear a lot more from, are for us by God with God's authority. They come with his full blessing. So turning now to the second point, who is it that they come to? Who are these blessings for? They are for God's people. They are for saints. And as we consider this uh, saints, this uh, sort of holy language, I want to push back against an idea that there are good Christians and bad Christians and middle-of-the-road Christians. There are either those, I want to say that there are either those who are not or they are. To use an inappropriate Southernism, according to my mom, you're either a saint or you ain't. There's no in-between. There's no middle of the road. There's no one foot, one foot in, one foot out saint. You're either in or you're out. And I think this is a helpful corrective because we can sometimes either have a perspective of ourselves or of others that, oh, well, they're, they're good Christians or I'm a bad Christian or maybe I'm, kind, I'm not as bad as they are, I'm not as good as they are, so I'm just a middle-of-the-road Christian. It seems that God does not have this perspective in terms of giving us a measurement like that. He just says, to the saints in Christ at Colossae and to the, to the saints in Christ at Christ Ridge. And to be a saint, again, this holy-sounding language, uh, we think of maybe if you know uh, some friends who are Catholic, you know, or you'll see a church, St. John's Church, St. James, and St. Anne, and so on. We think it's reserved for the elitists of the Christian faith. But really, it's meant for us all. We are all saints by God's purpose. Uh, to be a saint means having been set apart or more likely devoted to, set apart onto service, onto relationship uh, by God to make us more clearly bear his image. We are saints by God's doing, not ours. It is God's action, irrespective of our action. And because of this, it is a secure status. That's why I said the, the you know, audience's status, the bigger point here, uh, is it, it's by God to us, and it's secure. And it's not something we do or don't do. It is God's grace to us. And it's important to emphasize this because we can think, well, if I live like a saint, I'm a saint. And if I don't, then I ain't. Rather, being a saint by God's calling makes us, produces in us, works in us through the word and through the sacrament, grace that leads us to act like saints. But we cannot act like a saint if we are not to then become one. If we're not in Christ Jesus, we cannot be a saint. We can only be one in him. Uh, And this uh, being in Christ, this is, uh, yeah, I could do a whole sermon on this. I won't. Uh, maybe Brandon will. Uh, but in Christ, this is a homework assignment. Go, go home through the week, turn through the letters of Paul, and note every time he says, in him or in Christ. And just highlight that. And you'll notice that the New Testament, especially the Paul letters, are replete with the idea. 
And just to uh, whet your appetite with that, I will read from the uh, quote from the Confession, which uh, says in uh, Shorter Catechism 69, what is the communion in grace which the members of the invisible church, that is, true saints, have with Christ? Answer, the communion in grace which the members of the invisible church have with Christ is their partaking of the virtue of his mediation in their justification, adoption, sanctification, and whatever else in this life manifests their union with him. So all of those spiritual blessings, sanctification, justification, adoption, and whatever else, everything, comes to us through Christ, through being in him. He is the entire sphere in which we orbit and is the one who defines us as saints. So we must look outside of ourselves for our holiness because it comes to us through being in Christ and not through our independent works. To offer your works outside of Christ, ignoring Christ, forgetting Christ to God is like taking monopoly money to a bank. It doesn't matter how much you have, the bank is going to refuse you because that type of money is useless in that realm. We have to have fruitfulness in Christ. We have to look to him for our life and our hope. And this also means that if you are not in Christ, you ain't a saint. There is no way to be a saint without him. It all comes through being in Christ. Christ must be the center of our lives in every way and at all times. So final point, uh, what, what's the intention of this message? Some may read the Bible in this room and fear that God, or feel that God does not intend good things in it for them, but that he, he intends threatenings and he intends hard commands that I cannot keep and warnings. And he sort of looks at me with a scowl. But that's not how God thinks of us at all. That's not what God intends for us at all. Instead, he comes to us in a much more positive manner. He is, God is not a God of negativity towards us. Rather, he is one who has an overwhelming positive uh, acceptance of us in Christ Jesus. Paul says that God does not speak to his people to condemn them. And there are many letters like 1 Corinthians, Galatians, where you think God, eh, you maybe should condemn these there's some messy Christians in there. But he doesn't. He, he opens up the letters in this way. But he, he communicates to them grace and peace. Grace and peace. And as I noted in the, in the beginning, this is the way that Paul opens his letters and often closes them, is grace and peace. Everything that God says ultimately through this letter and all of the others is meant to communicate to his saints in Christ Jesus grace and peace, not hatred and anger, not condemnation and shame, not guilt and grief, but grace and peace. What then is this grace and peace? Many of us may have an idea of what grace is. It's 
God's undeserved favor? Yes, it is. Uh, more specifically, it's God's undeserved favor. It's, it's his demerited favor. We have not just undeserved his favor. We have done things that warrant him giving us his judgment. And instead, he greets us with his favor. It is God's abundant favor for us without regard to our actions, either good or bad, based in his free love for us in Christ Jesus. And if you get nothing else out of this sermon, know what grace is and that God intends that for you who are his saints. Know that that is the overwhelming way that God would have you to think of yourself as one who God wants to communicate grace and peace to, not as one who God wants to smash. And how do we know that this is how God is? Well, I read Psalm 103 that had part of this passage in it, but also Exodus 34. And this is an echo of the Old Testament, as it were. The Lord, uh, it says, the Lord passed before Moses. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and righteousness. This is the way that God identifies himself to his people, and it echoes to the whole Old Testament. Gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, rather than stingy and cruel and quick to anger and slow to forgive. And we see this in his actions because he says he's keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. In some ways, I feel like reading this, Psalm 103 is a commentary off of this passage from Exodus that shows us God's disposition towards us. So final application here. Because we have this confrontation that this is God's disposition towards us, we need to fight when we think that God has a contrary disposition towards us. Because that comes from the accuser who would seek to condemn and accuse and guilt and shame and so on to us, God's people. We must fight with the truth. We must seek God's grace and his word which confronts us. This table being uh, such an amazing representation of the way God comes to us and has meal with us, his people, though we are sinful. The fruit of God's grace is peace, and he intends that for us, to give us wholeness. Wholeness in part now, wholeness in entirety in the life to come. May we, as we uh, join, and I'll, uh, I also have a hymn I would like to just read from as we close, may we taste and see God's grace and God's peace here and now as we long for that which is to come. Sin and despair like the sea waves cold threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe. All who are longing to see his face Will you this moment his grace receive? May we receive his grace and may we praise his grace from, uh, in response. Um, we'll stand and sing uh, 358 for all the saints.